The reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, and behaving only in a human way? For one, when, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Great. My mom's great. That's good. Um, I went, uh, that's a question we just kind of always ask, right? Hey, how you doing? And you always say, great, right? Because whether you are or not, that's what you're supposed to say. But I want you to think about this morning how you're doing. And I don't mean just like now in this moment. Um, I just mean like in, in a, at a more deeper level than that. Like how, how is your life going? How's that? How, how's life going at the minute? And we might have different... Um, Answers to that, um, but it's a, it's a question that I think a lot of us ask ourselves, whether we ask it consciously or not, um, we're constantly evaluating, how's my life going? And we live in a society that's kind of a, a, a meritocracy, right? A lot of how we think our life is going is based on um, how we are doing as, uh, as our culture kind of dictates that we should be doing. Um, within that. We're interested in kind of being upwardly mobile. We live in, uh, we live to kind of achieve, to prosper, uh, to grow our kind of portfolio in life, whatever that may be. And in the process of kind of climbing this uh, ladder that, that we often uh, kind of have in our mind at some level in, in our Western kind of society, um, we look for often expressions of our faith that serve our aspirational pursuits. And if, uh, if we're not careful, these things become kind of uh, enmeshed in a way that isn't very helpful. And I want to um, uh, say today that I think in many ways we are uh, repeating history as humans tend to do, and uh, we are a lot like the Corinthian church uh, at the time that Paul is writing this letter to them. Um, if you remember, the context of, of what he's writing at the beginning of this letter is uh, the divisions in their church. Um, the church, uh, Paul had planted this church about four years prior to this, uh, somewhere in that, in that time frame. So uh, he was there, he planted them. No doubt he, uh, as we'll see, was a part of leading uh, many of them to Christ and to faith. 
he then moved on to uh, plant, is writing uh, this letter from Ephesus, and uh, he's writing in response to questions they have, but if you remember, also reports that he's gotten back that things aren't going so well. And uh, he's going to address lots of different things in this letter, uh, marriage, singleness, some sexual sin um, that, that they were uh, getting into. He's going to try to clarify the resurrection, like all things that in our mind are really kind of important things, but he doesn't start with any of those things. I find that really interesting. He doesn't start with any of those things. He starts with their division. They're not unified, and there's a reason they're not unified that we're going to see today. Um, and it has to do with their maturity. And this thing is so serious that in spite of all these other things that are going on, he decides to address this first. Um, they were allying themselves around different thought leaders, around different teachers. Uh, some were, were saying, Paul's our guy. No, it's Apollos. Uh, no, it's Peter. Um, yeah, it, all these kind of different factions that were there. And part of the reason was because of the way they were desiring to um, grow. Their idea of maturity was, was, was not a biblical way of thinking about maturity. It was a very earthly way to think about maturity. They were trying to grow in their faith in the same way they were trying to grow uh, before they came to Jesus. It's interesting. We have this kind of innate growth. We have this innate desire to grow, right? We understand that things should grow, um, if they're healthy. And Paul speaks into this using this metaphor of natural physical growth in those first couple of verses. He says, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. He's going to use these kind of terms as, as people of the flesh, um, as merely human. Um, basically, this divide between those that, that uh, are walking by the Spirit and those who are relying on their own uh, human strength, the flesh as it were. He says, I, 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 although you are spiritual people, I couldn't address you as such. I had to address you as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, notice he's addressed them as brothers, brothers and sisters. They're in Christ, so they're, they're Christians, but they, they're, they've had some kind of arrested development along the way. They're still infants. He said, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it. And so he appeals to, their, to our kind of natural desire to grow by using um, a, a physical metaphor. Natural growth is a sign of physical health. When things happen as they ought to, human beings progress through stages of physical growth, right? We start off as infancy, we move into childhood, into adolescence, and then eventually uh, into adulthood. Um, and then eventually you get to a stage where you start to look back, right? We all kind of look back and we long for our youth, right? We're like, oh man, what would it, man, Imagine if I could go back into my 20s, but know what I know now, right? Um, or we might, we might like, oh, imagine what it would be like to be a teenager again. I don't know of anybody who's like, oh, man, imagine what it was like when you were just in diapers and like just, you know, you, you couldn't even like use the toilet. Oh, I'd love to go back to that stage. Wouldn't that be great? Now, eventually we kind of all do. You live long enough, right? But, but no one longs for like infancy again. Or if you do, you probably should see a psychiatrist, right? There are outliers uh, out there. We have this perceived innocence, this carefree nature of our childhood, of our upbringing, and we might long for that. We might reminisce what it would be like to be at that stage again, but none of us are, are reminiscing of the time where we had to be fed and, and, and uh, you know, 
toileted by somebody else. We know that there's this natural trajectory to growth, both in natural, physical growth. And Paul is appealing to our desire for growth when he talks about stunted spiritual stature by using this physical metaphor. Personal growth is also a sign of mental health. We um, live in a, in a society, though, that is obsessed with kind of improving ourselves. It's an industry, self-improvement industry um, is well over a $12 billion industry per year. We are obsessed with personal growth, with finding fulfillment, our happiness, our meaning. We look to be actualized people, to become our, our true selves, to grow into the people that we, uh, that we believe have the, the most potential to become. And again, uh, there's, there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with that. God's designed us to grow. He's designed us to do this. But the Corinthians uh, are, are no different. They viewed Christianity, their faith, as a means for achieving their aspirational kind of progressive ends. And then there's kind of cultural growth, which is a sign of societal health. We should grow as a, as a society as well. Our modern society has a narrative of one of, of progression, of development, of advancing, to push the boundaries um, that we are evolving, that, we're, that, that history is moving us forward. We want the newest, we want the fastest, we want the sharpest. We want the thing that's the most touted. We want to be praised. We, we want the kind of must-have commodities in the world. And we spend billions, companies spend billions of dollars to convince us of what those things are. And to possess these symbols of our society is to assure ourselves that we've not grown stagnant that I'm still growing, that I'm still possessing, that I haven't ceased to evolve in a culture where only the fittest survive, we're constantly fine-tuning our lives to display our ability to grow, to adapt, and to evolve. We want others to see that we're progressing into the kinds of people that we aspire to be or that our culture esteems us to be. And again, living things should grow. They should progress. So this isn't all bad. Don't hear me say that this is all bad. God creates this world teeming with life that was meant to be cultivated. He gives us this mandate to, to culture, to cultivate, to nurture, to grow things. He designed human beings to flourish. We saw that throughout the Sermon on the Mount on every front, physical, mental, spiritual, personal, interpersonal, cultural. God has designed us to flourish in these areas. We see this from Genesis 1. Growth and progress and flourishing are built into God's design. But like so much of God's design, sometimes we, it becomes marred. Um, it becomes twisted. We don't see it in, in, in its purest kind of form. And when we think about how we mature, when we think about how we grow and progress as Christians, that should look differently. We'll see this morning. And there's a key to that. And this key is what the Corinthians are missing. They're trying to grow spiritually in the same way that they were trying to grow and be like everybody else. Uh, as we have seen, this culture, uh, this Greek culture, really esteemed the philosophers at the time, um, and you would kind of align yourself with different schools of thought, right? Nothing has changed, am I right? I'm a remainer. I'm an, I want everybody to know I'm a remainer. 
because that's what my tribe thinks is important. No, 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 I'm a Brexiteer because that's what my people think is, right? And you can have, you can have legitimate opinions about any of those things. My point is, is we align ourselves with these kind of different movements, whether they be political, whether they be social, whether they be environmental, whether they be whatever they are, in such a way that we posture ourselves first and foremost with those things. Paul says the Christians were doing the same thing with their Christian growth. And we do the same thing. We attach ourselves to, to certain teachers, certain people, right? And God gives us, gives us teachers uh, within the church broadly, locally, um, within that. But often as we do, we can make idols out of things. We can attach ourselves for the wrong reasons, And so growth and and progress are part of God's design. No one's looking to simply maintain. That's why when somebody says, how are you doing? We're never like, eh, we're kind of coasting. Kind of trying to maintain the status quo as long as I can. No, I'm I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm moving forward. Even if those were our thoughts, we don't share them out loud. Because we don't want to appear as though we've given up. We've stopped trying to better ourselves. And the only thing more fearful than kind of stasis, this kind of just, well, I'm kind of the status quo, is decline or regression. We hide physical decline as long as we can, right? We have a culture that's obsessed with youth. So we kind of try to cover up our physical decline with chemicals, anti-aging projects, surgery, different things like that. We hide behind personal regression uh, with substances, medication, And so Paul is attempting to appeal to the Corinthians' natural desire for growth because it's a beautiful thing. We're meant to grow. He's not promoting anti-growth in the name of humility. Being humble and actively engaging in progress are not mutually exclusive with each other. We can grow. We should be pursuing growth. But we can do that in a way that is humble. And do that in a way that is actually relying on the, on the right source. And this is namely where their main mistake is. We'll get this in a second. To the Corinthians, when Paul claimed that their attempts to achieve growth had been derailed, it would have come as a shock to them. These weren't people who, who he's saying, listen, you guys aren't trying to grow. You've become lazy. Uh, you need to be doing these things. He's saying, no, you're doing all of these things. You're trying to grow. You prize that. You value that. And yet you're still infants. It's not working. I had to keep feeding you milk like, a, like, a, like a, you would an infant. Here's the thing. We're all capable of spiritual immaturity. All of us. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, he says... Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Are you not being carnal? Are you not just being of the flesh, he says? And the reality is that we can all be this way at times. We can all pursue growing as Christians in a non-godly way. He says, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants. These are Christians. He calls them Christians. He's he's writing to them as Christians, but he says, you're still immature. This shows us that it's totally possible to be a genuine Christian and to still be immature. 
You can have saving faith in Jesus and not be growing in your faith in him. When we become legitimately followers of Jesus, we're born again into a family, the family of God. And so because of our new birth, spiritually we are as babies. <laughs> no matter how old you are, spiritually we, we come as babies, as, as, as newborns. And babies are meant to be immature, and that's okay, right? We expect babies to do baby things. But it's not okay whenever you're an adult and are still doing baby things. And this is what he says. The problem for the Corinthians wasn't that they started off as spiritual infants. It's that four years on, not much has changed at all. They've stayed as spiritual babies. And that's um, a sobering thought, isn't it? It's possible to be a Christian for a long time and still be immature. Physical maturity doesn't equal spiritual maturity. It doesn't matter how old we are biologically. We can still be very immature spiritually. Um, sometimes you can see that even, even within, pastor, pa- uh, within pastors. Um, pastors, that I, I've, you can kind of see this pattern of they kind of just change churches like every five years. And it just seems to be this kind of like repeating the same five-year growth cycle over and over again within, within themselves. There's no kind of staying in for the long haul. And what we see here and what always happens in churches where immaturity goes unchecked is it leads to division in the church. It leads to division. This is what had happened. They were breaking into different factions. And the evidence of their immaturity was that there was jealousy, that there was strife. Their growth had been derailed. Paul claims that they have made no progress in the faith, that they're acting according to the principles and progress and advancement of the broader Corinthian culture. <coughs> the gospel hadn't really hit home for them. And so how does he make this claim? The signs of their regression are seen in their factionalism, their jealousy, the strife that was at work. In Galatians 5, 19 and 20, Paul calls jealousy and strife works of the flesh. And he calls those things on par with things like idolatry, sorcery, sexual immorality. They're in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit brings love and joy and peace, self-control. It brings us united together. And the problem was the Corinthians were tapping into the wrong source for growth. They were looking to the wrong things to grow. And we often end up searching for progress and growth in all the wrong places. It's very easy to do. And sometimes it's very subtle. It happens very subtly. We might look to things, the broader culture might look to things like clothing, travel, gourmet meals, sophisticated culture to kind of pull us forward, to reveal ourselves. We kind of meticulously document our findings on social media for the world to see. We look to individuals, maybe romantic relationships, industry leaders, gifted writers, thoughtful celebrities, even influential religious leaders and pastors. We try to hitch our wagon to all of these different things. And if I'm honest and look back in my life, there have definitely been times um, unaware where I've, I look back and go, you know what, I was probably, that was probably me. I was probably looking to some of these other things to actually grow. Does God use people? Absolutely. Does he use leaders? Yes, he actually gives the church pastors and teachers. But we're not to look to them, not to look to them solely. Paul, 
he says they're being carnal or human. He's asking the question, are you not being of the sinful nature? Are you not being fleshly? He's trying to ask these kind of diagnostic questions so they'll be able to make an assessment about what's going on inside. Paul is suggesting that the very root of the problem is that they're aligned with the wrong source. They're aligned with the wrong source. Ultimately, the decision to seek growth in other things and in other people is a turn inward. It is a turn that when we look to our own self, we look to our own strength. We trust ourselves and our own judgment above all others to determine what growth looks like and how it's to be achieved. Growth is ultimately derailed when we search for it in ourselves. Here they're getting their divisions because of their immaturity. They're trying to put their preferences first. This is exactly what babies do, right? Think about an example of, of, of that. Like when your kids are, are small, they're toddlers, they're infants still, um, you have to like teach them how to share toys. You have to teach them that the world doesn't revolve around them. And it's fine to some degree when babies behave this way. It's kind of normal behavior for that. But it's not fine when adults who know better should, uh, should know better do that. And the Corinthians are preoccupied with themselves, their preferences rather than with God. And division in the church always stems from these wrong preoccupations. The church is the place where we come and we die to self. It's the place where we take up our cross and we follow Jesus. It's a community of self-sacrifice, not self-promotion. A community of other-centeredness, not self-centeredness. We are the body of Christ. He is our example. And so following his example, we lay down our rights and our preferences and our needs for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And it's by living this way that we counter the culture around us. We show the world what Jesus is like. (coughs) And so we strive for spiritual maturity because if we don't, the potential to destroy the church um, grows and grows. Paul's pointing at the Corinthians and saying your pattern not, sorry, your, not your pattern, your, your kind of patron, these people that they were trying to hitch their wagon to, is your source of growth right now. That's who you're looking to. I'm looking to Apollos. You can look to Paul if you'd like to. He wants to tell them where the true source of growth is and why until we get to the point where we understand that we're never going to come to a clear awareness of where we are and how we're doing. Because we can fall into a false sense of I'm doing really well when we might not be, like the Corinthians. And it actually goes the other way too. We can actually be hard on ourselves thinking, I'm doing so, I'm not growing at all. I'm not, I'm not where I should be. When you might actually be doing far better than, than you actually realize. But again, we're looking to the wrong source in that. Some says they follow Paul. Some says they follow Paulus. Sometimes we just say, I'm going to follow me. I'm going to be the person that, I, that I'm following. But he reminds them, is it not true that God is our source of growth? How can we know this? How does Paul want the Corinthians to find their ultimate source um, of growth? Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Now, that sounds like bad grammar, doesn't it? You think it should be who is Apollos and who is Paul? 
but he's being, he's being very accurate here. He's depersonalizing them. What is Paulos? What is Paulos? What, what is Paul? They are, they're just servants. They are tools through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, the Lord assigns servants. He gives the church pastors and, and elders and teachers, but they are that. It's an assignment. We all have assignments. Some are to plant. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, and this is the key. Who gave the growth? Who is actually giving the growth? It's not Paul who planted. It's not Apollos who watered. It's God who's giving the growth. It's God who's granting these things to happen. Now, he's not diminishing their roles. You can plant all day long. You can put seeds in the ground all day long. And if that thing doesn't get any water, it's, it's, nothing's going to happen. You can water the ground all day long, but you just end up with mud unless there's a seed underneath there. It takes both of these things. And it, it takes more than that, does it not? It takes the sun. It takes all kinds of things that we're just out of our control. He says, we are just tools in God's hands. He, per, he depersonalizes. He de-pedestalizes. Uh, pedal, Is that a word? He's like, listen, your source for real growth comes from the Lord. True growth is always God-given. True growth is always God-given. He says, God gave the growth. You ought to have been focused on the one who gives the growth. But because you're hung up on the delivery method, you're still drinking milk. A man in the desert doesn't care if the water comes in a bottle or if it's a puddle in the ground. When you are dying of thirst, dying of dehydration, you don't care what's holding the water. You need the water. God is the giver of growth. God is the giver of health, the life, the vitality, and flourishing. And if this is true, then there's all kinds of implications for that, right? So let's think of a couple of them um, as we draw uh, from the text. First implication that we see is we don't need to strive to produce our own growth, if we know and believe that our growth is something that we produce, uh, is something that we don't produce on our own, that we are not the source of our own growth, then we can give up on all of our self-help, self-improvement, sex, self-actualization project, uh, projects. The gospel declares that salvation is by grace through faith. But growth isn't going to come in a different kind of way either. It comes. Where Paul says to continue to work out our salvation in the same manner in which we obtained it. Grace through faith. Oftentimes we can think of, man, if I, just, if I just had the right devotional method, if I just got up early in the morning, that would fix it. If I just read this book more, that would fix it. Maybe I need to add another podcast into my life. If I just got the right proper re uh, regimen of spiritual disciplines all, all in order. Now, don't mishear me. Those things are not unimportant. There are means by which, there are these means of grace by which God has ordained growth to happen. And so prayer, time in the word, all of these things are important. 
But those things disconnected from God will not give you growth. You get that? Paul says, I'm just a tool. Apollos is just a tool. Uh, These kind of practices that we can put into our life are, are all tools. And you can use those in a way by which you're not actually abiding with with Jesus. And when that happens, our growth is stunted, it's arrested, or we grow in a a way that that isn't isn't from God. It's manufactured growth. It's not organic growth. Also, if God gives growth, then we are able to place our differences in proper perspective. Paul just says, listen, he and Apollos were simply servants. They're simply servants. We might, some of us might prefer to, to grow one, one kind of particular way. And we as humans uh, want to codify everything. We want to then sell that as a product. We want to do all these sorts of things as if it's the only way that you can grow. But it's not. There's lots of ways that, that God brings growth. And so we can set those kind of differences in perspective, in the right perspective. Are they important? Yes. Are they the most important thing? No. God affirms differences. Some plant, some water, some till the soil, some reap the harvest. God gives different gifts to the church. We're going to get into that later on in this book uh, in more specificity. But it doesn't mean that your gift is, is, is any more uh, valued than, than the gift that God gives somebody else. And we can buy into even how our culture views things, right? So, wow, if you're up here, well, I'm the only one talking right now, so that must mean my gift is way better than everybody else's gift. Well, that, but that's just not true in the economy of God. It's just a gift. I'm just a servant. It's just a way that we grow. Some water, some plant, some reap. And all of these things collectively make up the body of Christ. And it's a beautiful thing when it happens in unity. But it's not happening in unity because of their immaturity. Because of their immaturity. Difference does not, does not imply division. And a gospel-shaped community is one where there is unity in diversity. Now, we live in a country that doesn't have a lot of racial diversity. Um, and, and so you wouldn't expect that in a room like this. But we have a lot of diversity in a lot of other ways. We can have unity even though we might have socioeconomic diversity. We can have diversity of, of interest. We can have diversity of, uh, of background. We can have diversity um, politically and all, all sorts of different things. But maturity will bring unity, and those things will all be kept in their proper kind of place. Another implication, then, is we place our obedience into proper perspective. Someone has to plant. Someone has to water. Someone has to do all these things. We put all those things into, into the proper perspective uh, when we come together. So how can we be sure that God will actually resource growth? How can we be sure that he will do that? Because sometimes we want to take those matters into our own hands. We strive to grow. Again, good motive. But I, I'm just telling you right now. Um, I've been a Christian long enough. I've been, I've been in Christian leadership long enough to be able to look back. And it's always 2020 hindsight that, that is, is easier looking backwards. I can identify times in my past, in my life, where I was like, you know what? 
the motivation was good. I was trying to do the right thing. But man, I was just really just plugging away on my own there. I was really trying to do a lot of that on my own strength. I was really trying to rely on that right conference or that right mixture of, of sorts of, of things as if we can kind of come up with some, we can conjure up the spirit to, to work in a certain kind of way. It's our job to be faithful. It's just our job to obey and to abide, as we'll see in a minute. It's God's job to be fruitful. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of Lucas or the fruit of Adam. Well, especially Adam. You don't want Adam's fruit. He really messed that one up. Sorry. Picked the wrong example there. <laughs> right? It's not the fruit of Emma. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And he produces and he works in that. He is the farmer. We are the farmhand. We just do what the farmer tells us to do. So how can we be sure that God's going to resource growth? Well, we look back to the very beginning. There was a gardener who created the world, meant to thrive, meant to flourish. He places human beings in this garden, this Garden of Eden at the very beginning. And, um, and we tried to grow on our own, didn't we? I don't need God I don't, I, don't, I don't want to rely on his way to cultivate the world. I'm going to try to be equal to him. I'm going to disobey. I'm going to try to go out on my own. And his garden falls into disrepair. And what does he do? He doesn't abandon it. He doesn't abandon it. He incarnates himself, he incarnates himself into the world that he has created in order to take the fall. In order for a new creation to come forth. In order to deal with sin and decline and regression and with death, to defeat those things, to create for himself a new people who are then called to be his co-gardeners, to help cultivate, to help flourishing, servants, as Paul says. Some will plant and some are going to water and some are going to till and some are going to harvest. He's created a new humanity through the defeat of his own death and his resurrection. And he's promised that in the end, we will experience eternal growth. We will experience eternal flourishing and progression on all fronts, natural, personal, societal, cultural. All of these things will be made new. And as we live in a renewed, reconciled garden city, this new creation, when we see the lengths to which the gardener has gone to assure us the extent of which his promises are going to reach, we can do no else than to trust him. That God's plan is moving forward in his providence, in his sovereignty. And that's such good news. The pressure is taken off then, isn't it, to produce this kind of growth. We don't need to ask of the things of the world to produce it for us. Growth is given to us by God as we sink deeper and deeper into the meaty, sustaining realities of the gospel. So what does that look like? Because that, that kind of sounds confusing. Because there have been times that we've, like, over the last even few series, like, hey, these are things that we ought to be doing, like practicing the way of Jesus. And if we practice those things, surely then that should lead to growth. Is that true or is it not true? Well, it depends. This is what Jesus says in John 15. He says, I am the vine, 
You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's abiding in him as we do these practices. You can Sabbath all you want to. You can, you can be very legalistic in our approach to reading the scripture. You can tick all those boxes, get through the whole thing in a year. You can be a church faithfully. You can lead ministries. You can do all of those things. But if we're not abiding in Christ, it's manufactured kind of growth. We do these things as we abide in him. He is the vine. We are the branches. The nutrients that flow, these gospel nutrients flow out through him. It's our connection to the true vine. So we need to be connected to the very source of growth. And just as faith is utterly impossible, growth is utterly impossible apart from Christ. Apart from me, you can do nada. Zilch, zero, nothing of any kind of significance at all in the kingdom. And this is what's happening with the Corinthians. They're trying to produce growth. They're trying to produce these things by aligning themselves. And in, in, the, in the midst of all of this immaturity, it's actually tearing the church apart. It's actually not a witness to the culture at large. It's the opposite of that. It's the opposite effect. Why? Because they're trying to grow in the same way they do in every other area of their life. They're trying to grow as the, culture, as the culture does. But what have we seen already? What will the culture think of us being connected to the vine and abiding in Christ and trying to grow the way that he says? What will it be to them? Foolishness. It will be foolishness. And we have to be willing to accept that our lives are going to look a little bit different or maybe a lot different. We need to understand Paul's message to the Corinthians in light of what he has said earlier in the letter. Christ sent him to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is arguing that when they look to power, when they look to strength, wisdom, light, when they're looking to these patrons that they're trying to ally themselves with, they're approaching all the wrong sources. The paradigm in this alternate community is a subversive, upside-down nature. It's a community in which strength looks like weakness, wisdom looks like foolishness. And it's the cross that underpins everything about this community. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the gospel that's underpinning all of this. And apart from the very source of growth that's offered in the person of Jesus Christ, there's not going to be any way to attain personal growth. Not in anything that counts for the kingdom. But this is really liberating, right? This is why we call the gospel good news. This morning, if you're here and you've come weary, if you've come discouraged, if you think, man, I'm just not as far along as I'd like to be, this is liberating news. It's troubling if we work with the assumption that it is what we can do for God and not what God can do for us that's going to somehow get us to grow. Attempting to create growth in and of ourselves leads to despair because it always fails. 
But if we know that there's an unconditional source that never changes, that is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, will be for eternity. And if that source that actually um, gives us what we can't acquire on our own, then there is great hope, isn't there? There's great hope for that. We come to the table with that hope. Um, Nick sent me these words uh, from a devotional from Charles Spurgeon. And so I'm just going to read it as, a, as, a, as, a, as we lead into our time of communion because um, I think it, it's just probably better than me trying to... I'm not as good as Spurgeon, let's just put it that way. And I know he's just a tool and so am I, but he's just a better wordsmith than me. So we're going to let him inspire us from the grave today. So can I just... Let's hear these words. Are you mourning... Believer, because you are so weak in the divine life, because your faith is so little, your love so feeble, man, is surely all of us that have Christians have felt that at some point. It might not be this morning. All the women are like, no, nah, we're flying high after the weekend. All the guys are like, yeah, that's me, man. I'm like, just drug in here, right? We've all felt that way, surely. And you will, if you're a new Christian, like, no, this is all amazing. Give it some time. It is amazing, but we don't always feel that. But here's what he says. He says, cheer up. For you have cause for gratitude. Remember that in some things you are equal to the greatest and most full-grown Christian. I want you to think about that. Who's the most mature Christian you know? Who's the person you're like, man, that's the kind of Christian I want to aspire to be. And in our weakest point, he says, you're already equal to that person. Why? You are as much bought with the blood as he is, as they are. You are as much adopted child of God as any other believer. An infant is as truly a child of its parent as its full-grown man. You are as completely justified, for your justification is not a thing of degrees. Your little faith has made you, um, uh, your little faith has made you uh, clean every whit. You have as much right to the precious things of the covenant as the most advanced believers. For your right to covenant mercies lies not in your growth, but in the covenant itself. And your faith in Jesus is not the measure but the token of your inheritance in him. You are as rich as the richest, if not in enjoyment, yet in real possession. The smallest star that gleams is set in heaven. The faintest ray of life has affinity with the great orb of the day. In the family registry of glory, the small and the great are written with the same pen. You are as dear to your father's heart as the greatest in the family. Jesus is very tender over you. You're like the smoking flax. A rougher spirit would say, put out that smoking flax. It fills the room with an offensive odor. But the smoking flax, he will not quench. You're like a bruised reed. And any less tender, and, and any less tender hand than that of the chief musician would tread upon you or throw you away. But he will never break the bruised reed. Instead of being downcast by reason of what you are, you should triumph in Christ. Am I but little in Israel? Yet in Christ I am made to sit in heavenly places. I, am I poor in faith? Still in Jesus I am heir of all things. Though less than nothing I can boast and confess. Yet if the root of the matter be in me, I will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the God of my salvation. Amen. Amen. That is good news. 
It's good news that he saves us, and it's not of our own doing. If we could save ourselves, we wouldn't. If we could lose your salvation, you would. Us trying to grow apart from Christ in worldly kind of ways, looking to worldly kind of systems, even within the Christian world, because that's what we do. We kind of Christianfy the world, and then we turn it into Christian ways. And this is what's happened in Corinth. And Paul is placing them right back into where they are. He who plants and waters are one. Each is going to receive his wages according to his labor. I love that because it's not his wages according to the harvest. The har- There's the Lord of the harvest. He's in charge of that. He's in charge of fruit. You'll get your wages just according to your labor. You just work. You just be faithful. You don't have to worry about the harvest. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. God is the farmer working in the field. He is the master craftsman building this building. We are just to abide in him. We are to be connected to the vine. And yes, we do that through prayer. Yes, we do that through worship. Yes, we do that by coming together and encouraging one another. Yes, we do that by listening to to the teaching of God's word, which requires teachers and preachers and all these kind of apparatus that we have. But they are all just means by which God gives the growth. They are not the end and of themselves. It is Jesus. He is the end. So be encouraged this morning. Be encouraged as we come to the table. Paul's going to talk about uh, the Lord's Supper. And he's going to talk about us examining ourselves. And we don't come just kind of willy-nilly to the table. Um, But often I had always taken that, I think, in the wrong way. That if I found something in my examination that I wasn't worthy, then I had to stay away from the table. But that's that's not it. We're not to make light of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. But if it was us to be worthy and to be clean enough to come to the table, none of us would be up here this morning. None of us. So we examine ourselves. We confess our faith. We confess our sin. Why? So that we can abide with Jesus. And so come this morning to the table. Come with that confession in your mouth. Come, receive these emblems uh, of, of his death, his resurrection for us. These means of grace by which we grow. Week after week, we come. We rehearse the gospel. We fix our eyes squarely on Jesus once again. We confess our sin, even the sin sometimes of trying to be a good Christian, of trying to grow on our own. We just confess that we need to be connected to the vine, that apart from him, we can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, we are complex kind of people. We are really complex kind of sinners. <laughs> and we, uh, are, we just confess today that our natural bent is just to continue to try to, to do life on our own. Even we can, uh, we can slip back into those old ways of thinking as, as a Christian. Where we thank you for uh, the grace that saved us, uh, but we don't really need that grace. We got it from here. Uh, we'll, we'll try to manufacture our own kind of way of growing or we take these means of grace that you've given us and we just strip them of the power um, that they have because we are looking to them themselves. If I just read X amount of chapters, if I just attend church, if I just do all of these things and they just end up being our kind of uh, filthy rags, our works of trying to please you.
instead of just knowing who we are because of who you say we are. And so, Father, this morning I pray that, um, that we would confess of our sin. Sometimes that's, sin looks like a, the younger brother. It's uh, kind of all doing these worldly sorts of things. But, Father, may we just uh, confess of our sin of self-righteousness as well. Us, like the older brother, I've done all the things you've asked me to do. I've stayed here with you. I've not run off in wild living, and yet he was just as far away from the Father as as his younger brother was. Father, may we believe in your goodness. May we know your love this morning. We believe, but help our unbelief. Amen.